I'll turn your Bibles, please, to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. We're going to read verses 7 to 12 that deal with the timeless question in our series, Timeless Questions from the Psalms. This is the Word of God. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Join me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that it is your word that stands. And Father, in this uh, well-known psalm that's so encouraging to us, we pray this morning that your spirit uh, would teach us, Father, uh, about, uh, about fleeing from you, we would ask. Uh, so help us as we answer that question, we pray, and apply it to our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Adam and Eve were the first to flee, uh, and God found them. And so it goes on until history will come to an end. We read in the book of the Revelation, chapter 6, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who shall stand? So given human experience, sort of a stunning question here. I mean, David's going through, he's taking great delight in God as he contemplates uh, these, uh, our relationship to God uh, and as his created beings and these great theological truths. But he takes them, what he does is he shows them how, how personal they apply to each one of us. In doing so, David uh, seems like perhaps feeling a bit like a flea. For those of you who read, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, he's overwhelmed. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. Where shall I flee from your presence? Well, what's the answer? What are the implications for us? Let's go to the text and see. First, God's omniscience, that is, God knows everything. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. I mean, David could have simply written, God knows everything, uh, but he shows instead how God's knowledge relates directly to the events of our everyday lives. Uh, David tells us God searches us, and God knows us. Uh, God knows more about each one of us than we know about ourselves. He knows every single thought we have. He knows what we're going to thinking, what all of us are thinking right now, 
what we're going to be thinking in 10 minutes, and every thought we will have between now and then. Uh, he knows all those dreams that you say you cannot remember. Well, guess what? God knows them. He knows them. He knows our activities. He knows every time we get up, every time we sit down, every time we lie down, every time we get up. He knows where we go every single place throughout the day. He knows our habits. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. Uh, he knows what we're going to say before we say it. He knows the thinking process behind each word. He knows what motivates us to speak each word. You ever had somebody say something rather inappropriate, and then they say, I don't know why I said that. Well, you see, God does. God knows why they said it. Uh, and he knows it all. And verse 5 says that knowledge is assuring to us. It, it hems us in. You know, a doctor's knowledge reassures us in times of illness. A plumber's knowledge reassures us in times of, of leaky pipes. All right? And God's knowledge about everything in our lives reassures us that he's caring for us in a very chaotic world. So how do we respond to that kind of knowledge? Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. David's amazed by God's knowledge. And so he acknowledges our own limitations, and by doing that, he's acknowledging God's greatness. And the result is not, not just security, but it's praise and adoration. Now, how many of us like a, a really good hot dog? All right, I do. Uh, but do you remember the first time somebody wanted to tell you just what that good hot dog had in it? You remember that? Somehow they insisted on sharing the ingredients just as you were putting them on the grill. And you had to say, I don't care. You know? Well, too much knowledge about the ingredients and what? Maybe we might not want to eat it. Now, I want you to think about everything God knows about you. And everything God knows about me. Uh, and, and, and if you knew all the things he knows about me, you would not like me, all right? You wouldn't. And I would think God would really not like me because of all the things that he knows about me. Uh, yet amazingly, the choir, the orchestra just played it. He loves us. He still loves his children despite all the sin that God's already seen us commit and despite all the sin that God knows we're going to commit for the rest of our lives. He still loves us. And he'll continue to love us for all of eternity. God knows us intimately and completely and loves us. That shouldn't mean we can live our lives with great assurance, amazed and comforted by God's omniscience. But at least for a moment, David feels overwhelmed by God's omniscience. And so he wants to run and hide. And that's when he asks our timeless question, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? See, what David begins to contemplate is God's omnipresence, meaning God's everywhere present all the time. Verse 8, 
If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So David takes a a trip around the universe to see if there's some place he can find that God is not. But what's he find out? As Jeremiah tells us, God speaking here, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Uh, Now let's be sure we understand. Omnipresence teaches that God fills all his creation. Pantheism asserts that all creation is God. All creation is divine. Again, Scripture, God's distinct from his creation. Um, There's always a binary. There's God and everything else. Uh, God is not one with his creation. That's what the pantheists teach. But in the vastness of his creation, there will be no place that any person can go to escape from the presence of God. Even in the depths of Sheol, the depths of hell, the wrath of God is present. And to take the wings of the morning, that's a a beautiful expression, probably means to move with the speed of the morning light across the sky. And even if we move with the speed of that light, We cannot get away from God. We can swim across the deepest ocean. We can climb the highest mountain. We can go to the depth of the deepest sea. And God's there. And he's involved. And he's guiding us and he's holding us no matter where we go. When the astronauts go into space, God's there. God inhabits the whole vast universe that he's made. Earth's just a small part. Our sun is 1.3 million times larger than the earth, but there are stars a million times brighter than our sun. The Milky Way galaxy is so big that our sun, traveling about 155 miles per second, will take 200 million years to make a single revolution in its orbit around the Milky Way. And there are millions of other galaxies. Now, when I was a child, Before there was Star Trek, before there were Star Wars, there was Lost in Space. Great TV show. It was the feature of the Robinson family and on a a, a spaceship trip gone awry. Uh, And they faced many adventures as they wandered the galaxy. But the reality is, God would never say they were lost in space. Because they weren't. He knew where they were. And he was there. He was there. He's the everywhere God. Have you ever tried to play a good game of hide and seek after dark? You know, it makes it a little easier to hide, of course. Takes that child's game and kicks it up a notch. Uh, Yet verse 11 says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night's as bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. God always wins at hide-and-seek when he's the seeker. Just tell you that, even in the dark. So David said, there's no place we can go to get away from God. On the other hand, God actually might 
lose when he's the, the hider. Why? Because he's everywhere. And he says, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Friends, just as a mother reaches into the crib and the touch of her hand calms the crying baby, God gently lays his hand on each one of us, it says here, in calm and assurance of his omnipresence, and it gives us great security. And it leads David to contemplate God's omnipotence, God's great power that makes everything that is, and his providence rules and directs everything that he makes. Verse 13, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. God's creative power is evidenced in every human being. The unique personhood of each preborn child is described in these verses. If you wonder why we have a concern for children in the mother's womb, well, that passion for children comes because God's knit them together individually. And they're all masterpieces. They're all Monet's and Van Gogh's, made in his image, no matter the color or the sex or the nationality or ethnic group or potential or needs or who the parents are. God knits each child together special as he wants that child to be for his praise and glory. You know, it doesn't seem like all that many years ago when the doctor turned to me and asked if I'd like to hear our first child's heartbeat. And the device was actually quite primitive, sort of an ear trumpet, you know, it just had this bell-shaped thing on the end and a tube that led it to my ear. But I listened, and I was thrilled to hear, hear that child's heartbeat. But today, modern technology enables us to see and monitor the growth of a baby to carry out the intricate surgeries uh, before a baby's born. We have such a view that we know that at 22 weeks after conception, a baby's heart is beating. It's using his or her own blood. But then at the third week, the child's backbone and spinal column and nervous system are forming. The livers, the kidneys, intestines begin to take shape. Week five, the eyes, the legs, and the hands begin to develop. Week six, brain waves are detectable. Mouth and lips are present and fingernails are forming. Week seven, eyelids and toes form. The nose is distinct. The baby begins to kick and swim. Week eight, every organ is in place. Bone begins to replace cartilage. And fingerprints, fingerprints begin to form. And the baby can begin to hear. God is knitting each child together. That's why all children are special to him. They're all made in his image. And they're precious no matter the socioeconomic status they're born into. No matter the special needs they might have physically or mentally. Uh, that's why children deserve homes and families. That's why children without them need to be adopted. Even as we've been adopted into the family of God. Likewise, Hall County needs people willing to serve as foster parents. If I know what that's like, talk to the Pierces or the, the Nelsons or the Birches. They can share with you how God's blessed their families. You can get involved in support for foster care families. Check with Beth Orpesa about that. And so what's our response 
to God's power displayed in how he makes each one of us. We should join with David in verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. God has made us what and who we are. And we want to worship him as creator. God does not need human technology. He saw us when our bodies were not yet formed. That's the kind of power he has, the kind of vision. And look how marvelously he made us. You know, we celebrated with our senses two weeks ago. We involved them in the worship as we took the Lord's Supper. The sense of taste is wonderful to have. A spicy enchilada, a sweet iced tea, tart lemon. Our eyes enable us to see and enjoy all of God's creation. It enables us to, to, to hear the waterfalls and children playing, birds singing, and the symphony. We're marvelously wonderful. All of us. And the last part of verse 16 speaks of his providence over his creatures. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when is there, yet there was none of them. See, God planned our existence and our lives eons of time ago. He established our lifespan, and we cannot make it one day longer, and we cannot make it one day shorter. This means we can live our lives to the full. We can seek to serve Him all the days of our lives. We don't have to worry about illness or tragedy. Should not make us reckless. Shouldn't be careless now we live. Should not make us ignore prudent health advice. But it should take the fear of dying away. We're not going to die until God is ready for us. And when He's ready for us, there's nothing we can do to stop the process. We'll be with Him forever. Because we saw last week, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Perhaps some of you remember the story of PCA Pastor Jack Arnold. He's a wonderful man of God. He was preaching at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Central Florida, preaching on the cost of discipleship. Near the end of the sermon, and he quoted his favorite verse, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then he quoted uh, John Wesley, until my work on this earth is done, I'm immortal. But when my work on earth is done, my work for Christ, then he slapped his hands together. He said, I'm out of here. I don't know about you, but when my work is done, I go to be with Jesus. And that will be gain. And when I go to heaven, and he swayed a bit, and grabbed the pulpit, and he fell back. And he was gone. Gone to be with Jesus. His mission on earth complete. Maybe every pastor's dream, I don't know. Um, So we take his omniscience, we take his omnipresence, we take his omnipotence, uh, and and David does just make them remote doctrines, but he applies them, at least three applications we'll look at. First, in verse 78, he simply marvels at the mind of God, Uh, literally resists, how precious concerning me are your thoughts, O God. 
How vast is the sum of them if I would count them? They're more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. God has special thoughts about each one of us. More thoughts about us than there are grains of sand. Contemplate that. He thought about every detail as he made us, the color of our eyes, each strand of hair, the freckle below your elbow. All right? He thought about how he would display his love for us through Jesus Christ on the cross, dying for us. He thinks about the home he's prepared for us in eternity. Right now, God's thinking about you. And he's thinking about you. And he's thinking about you. He's thinking about me. He's thinking about all the people all over the world. And then that thinking brings him to work in our lives by the power of his greatness. Second, he gives us a bit of a perspective on evil, on the enemies of God. Verse 19. All that you would slay the wicked, O God, all men of blood depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do not I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now when we realize God's knowledge, His presence, His power, when we realize His greatness and His glory, when we begin to grasp that He's a holy God who will have nothing to do with sin except to punish it, then we begin to understand evil and recognize it all around us. The evil in our world stands in great contrast to a holy God. And so we become zealous for God. And we stand against the evil that we see in the society around us. We stand and we say sexual immorality is wrong, no matter what the world says. We stand and say there are such things as moral absolutes, and there is absolute truth. We value all of human life, and we consider it sacred from conception to the grave. We believe in the binary. A person is either male or female, and that's determined by by biology, not by wishful thinking in rebellion against God, our Creator. We cringe when we hear God's name taken in vain, and we're not afraid to call sin, sin, and call this nation back to righteousness and back to God. The day we stop caring about God's holiness and about the sin around us, the people around us who are in danger of going to hell, the day will be that we'll cease to make any difference in this world around us. Let me just say that our zeal for holiness and righteousness must be reflected by a zeal for sharing God's grace. No matter what the sin, God's forgiveness is more than enough. Our desire is not to heap guilt for past sins on unbelievers, but to point them to the source of forgiveness and love, and that is Jesus Christ and the cross. So that leads us to David's third application. It's a humble prayer we would do well to echo. It's not a prayer for the weak. It's not a prayer for the fearful and faint of heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way 
in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's quite an invitation to a God who knows everything. The idea is that he begins to show us what sin is present in our lives that we might repent of it and then walk in this way, live for his glory. I mean, all of us struggle with sin. It's a constant battle, a constant threat. Uh, It's a temptation around us. But the prayer invites God to investigate our lives and expose those sinful desires. Expose what drives us to sin because we're not satisfied with him so that in turn we can repent of our sins and be used for his glory. 18th century, a Scottish seaside inn. So you got there and there's a group of fishermen and they're relaxing after a long day at sea. As the server was walking past with a pot of tea, one of the men made a sweeping gesture to describe the size of the fish he claimed he had caught. He collided with the teapot and there it went, brown stain all over a freshly painted wall, leaving a rather irregular brown splotch. The innkeeper heard the noise, came out to, to check and surveyed the damage in dismay. So that, that stain will never come out. The whole thing's going to have to be repainted. Perhaps not. And all his eyes turned to the stranger who spoke. What do you mean? asked the innkeeper. Well, let me work with the stain, said the stranger. Stand for his table in the corner. If my work meets your approval, you will not have to repaint your wall. So the stranger opened up a box and took out pencils and brushes and paint. He began to sketch lines around the stain and fill in here and there with dabs of color and swashes of shading. And soon that random splash of tea turned into the image of a, of a, of a stag with a magnificent uh, rack of antlers. And then at the bottom, the, the man inscribed his name, and he paid for his meal, and he left. And the innkeeper was stunned when he went over to examine the wall. And he turned to the people and he said, do you know who that man was? In amazement. The signature reads E.H. Landseer. Indeed, it was the work of Sir Edwin Landseer, the renowned wildlife painter. And friends, here's what happens. God takes the sins and the failures and the disappointments of our sin-saturated lives. And he doesn't merely erase them, but he turns them into a thing of beauty or grace. Past sins can be uh, very haunting for us. They can be very guilt-laden for us. But friends, God's grace is greater than all our sin. Our sins, there are many. His mercy is more. And when we catch this glimpse of amazing God's greatness and glory, and remember with our finite human minds, all we get is just a glimpse of God's greatness. Then we see him in that glimpse in his holiness and love. And the cross becomes all the more amazing because he loves us. And it's that cross that takes away our sin, our offensive way, when our faith and our trust is in Jesus. 
believing he died on the cross for us, for our sins. And then the prayer goes beyond that. It asks God to expose our anxious thoughts, our anxieties, what keeps us up at night, so that we can know with great assurance and comfort he knows what we're facing. He's always present for us. He grants us strength to face life, a quiet trust, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who leads us on his way for his glory. So what about us? So where can I flee? Nowhere. All right, got that? Nowhere. And you don't want to. Bobbing said, the only thing that separates us from him is sin. It does not distance us from God locally, but spiritually. To abandon God, to flee from him as Cain did, as Adam and Eve did, it's not a matter of local separation, but spiritual separation, incompatibility. Going to God and seeking his face does not consist in a pilgrimage to Mecca, but rather it's in a repentant heart for our sins. Those who seek him find him, not far away, but in the very immediate presence. So today, do you know his presence? If not, let us share after, with you afterwards how you can know him through Jesus' death and resurrection. If we do know him, we need to contemplate this world, our relationship with it and with him. The teacher asked her students to say what they thought were the new seven wonders of the world, the present ones today, and the students voted, and they, they came up with the pyramids and uh, the Empire State Building, Taj Mahal, St. Peter's Basilica, Panama Canal, Great Wall of China, Grand Canyon. Six man-made, I would point out to you. Then the teacher noted that one student hadn't turned in her paper yet. So she asked the girl, you're you having some trouble thinking of things? The girl said, well, yes, a little. I really couldn't make up my mind because there are so many. She said, well, let us, let us help you. Tell us what you've written. And here's what she said. I think the seven wonders of the world are to see, to hear, to touch, to taste, to feel, to laugh, to love. Indeed, those are the seven wonders of how God's made us to enjoy his world, to enjoy his constant presence with us in it. It's like, God, let's take time, reflect on our amazing God to whom belongs all the glory. But let's not be so overwhelmed that our desires say, where shall I flee? But rather to issue a rather humble yet bold invitation that God will work in our lives for his glory. To pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Father, we are stunned by your greatness, by your glory, by your knowledge, by your power, by your presence, by your love. 
So, Father, may we not say, where shall I flee? But, Father, may we realize you are right here with us. There's nowhere to go. And that, Father, you love us, and you're going to love us forever. So, Father, assure us of your presence now, even in the darkness that we might be experiencing. Father, there's anybody here that doesn't yet know the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, today, show them the great God that you are. Show them your love through the cross and the resurrection, we pray, and draw them to that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.